just, just a word of introduction. Uh, in recent decades in the Orthodox community in particular, Halakha has risen to become the defining characteristic of Jewish religion. Um, I don't think that's been entirely healthy, but my topic tonight grows from this other question. Given Halakha, what is Halakha? Is it a legal code with prescribed actions, with authoritative precedents, which is divinely revealed, eternal, and according to some unchanging? Or, as I would like to suggest tonight, is it an attempt to concretize and channel actions and emotions that flow from being a member of a covenant, of a breed, of a community which sees itself as in partnership with God, with Hashem, and that partnership is about tikkun olam, about perfecting the world that we live in. The core value of this partnership, my contention, the core value is that every human being is in the image of God. You will recall that statement in the first chapter of Genesis of Rashid. that the human being is and was created in the image of God man and woman so the first question I pose is what does it mean and my contention is that this is the core value from the whole covenant is about creating a world in which Selim Elohim is upheld recognized and honored as the Selim Elohim as an image of God well, what is the Tzalem Elohim then? What are the internal qualities of the Tzalem Elohim that make it, that make one the Tzalem Elohim that have to be honored and that which the covenant seeks to realize? So if you turn to the inner sheet, the second sheet in your group, we have an attempt on the part of the Mishnah, a very rare attempt, but an important attempt to define what is an image of God? The, ca- the background of this Mishnah is that this is a capital punishment case, meaning the defendant, if convicted, will be condemned to death. Chazel felt then that if you're testifying in a case where human life is at stake, it's not enough to take an oath, I'll tell the truth. That's not good enough. Why? Because how you tell the truth and with what precision is very much affected by what you think is at stake. If I'm testifying in a case where $100 will change hands of testimony, I will speak the truth, hopefully. But if a billion dollars is at stake, I will mentally say every word is $100,000. I'll try to pick every word and say it accurately and carefully. So Chazal felt that the witnesses it would not be enough to swear to tell the truth. They would have to take a different oath, an oath that would make them realize how serious it is to talk to testify and to condemn or exonerate a human being in the image of God. And this is what you have in the Mishnah before you. I'll read it in the Hebrew. There's a translation to the left, and I'm starting about halfway down. It's about 15 or 16 lines down in the Hebrew on the right side. You as witnesses should know that it's a very grave testimony because the Torah tells us Specifically, this story of Adam, 
a human being being created, Yechidi, the only one. That's, of course, the story of chapter 1 of Adam. Lelamdecha, the whole point of the story is to teach you, whether you will value this, judge this. Shekol ha-ma'abed nefesh achad mebnei Adam. If you destroy one life, it's as if you wiped out a whole world. We have a message from our sponsor. Maybe God would like me to change this sin. I'm just kidding. Is that me? Yes, I'm going to turn this off. Sorry. So the first uh, statement the Mishnah makes that if, if you save one life, it's like saving a world called but if you destroy one life, <coughs> what we have in the Mishnah is attempt to define three dignities inherent in being an image of God. And the first of these is that if you affect one life, save it or destroy it, it's like saving a whole world. Thanks to Steven Spielberg. This has now become the most famous line in rabbinic uh, tradition, maybe. But I'd like to try to articulate or quantify what it's saying. What do you think it means to say, if you save one life by saving a whole world? Quick response. Please. Well, originally, the, there was only one man in this world, right? So clearly sufficient for one person that the world was created. Right. In effect, this might be a quantitative statement. One person, from that one person has come the whole human race. By implication, therefore, you're not just killing one person, you're killing all the descendants, all of the community. I think it's a good comment. There are one or two other important commentaries. I want to cut to the chase because of the time factor and suggest, is one of the possibilities. Why should one be equal to the now 6 billion, 234 million? 75,222 I'm out of date because since I was the word two more were born but anyway why should one be equal to six billion there is I would suggest a mathematical category in which one equals the whole class and that of course is the mathematical category of the infinite one times infinity is infinity six billion times Infinity. So I think what the Mishnah is trying to say to us is that every human being has infinite value. So if you've killed or saved, you've saved an infinite value in life. Second dignity of Etzelam Elohim, Um Neshom Habrios, it's actually a dignity that leads to peace between people. Shalomar Adam, Machavero, no one can say to their friend, Abba Gadome Abicha. No one can say my father is greater than yours, or I have a social status greater than yours, or I'm an aristocrat in Europe. In short, what's the second dignity of every image of God? Equality. Equality. And if you think about it for half a minute, if I'm infinitely valuable, how can you be worth more than me? So the first dignity of Itzalma Lukim is that they are to be treated and seen and experienced as infinitely valuable person and B they're to be seen and treated as equal so for example sexism would be a violation <coughs> of this principle of my dignity as it's a 
racism, anti-Semitism. The point is equality. If I see you as an image of God, I see you as equal to me, and I will treat you and talk to you and deal with you accordingly. And every person should be seen that way. Which brings me to the third dignity that the Mishnah underscores. I'll skip a couple of lines. Lahage Gidulasa, this third dignity is a compliment to God, so Kodesh Baruch Hawaii. Adam Toveyamad Kamamad Beot Mechote Mechad. When a human being coins many coins from one mold, the Kulan Domen Zelazev, and each coin comes out identical to the other. Melech Machayam Lochem Akodesh Baruch Hu, God creates images, images of God. Tova Koladom Mechote Moshe, they're all descended or in the mold of one Adam Rishon, yes, and yet not one human being is identical to another. So what's the third dignity of it, Salam Akim? Sorry? Individuality or uniqueness. So again, if I would see you as an image of God, not as one of 70 or whatever the number of people in this room is, I'm addressing the If I'd see you as a Selma Hukim, I would see you as a unique individual, which means what? I would talk to what's on your mind. I would answer your question. There was a Trisha wanted to honor you as a Selma Hukim. They would get one speaker for each of you so you could hear what you want to hear and respond to what you will. Okay. So we're not living up to that standard, but the principle is clear. In principle, every human being is born with those dignities. It's irrelevant. They're bank account, their good looks or not good looks, their ancestry, it's irrelevant. You're born with those three dignities. If you look at the bottom of this page, you won't go through all this. Is a machloket in the Durin Yushalmi, in which Rabbi Kiva says the basic klal gadol, the principle from which the whole Torah is derived, is love your neighbor as yourself. Benazai says, no, it's Selim Elohim, it's that human being is creating God's image is the basic principle. If you look at the commentaries, the Pnei Moshe said very simply, if you understand and recognize this principle, that the person you are looking at, the person you're talking to, the person you're dealing with, the person who you are in contact with, is an image of God, he says, if you understood this principle correctly, you would automatically... Mekayim Rola Mitzvah automatically carry out the positive commandments, the mana, and you would be holding back from the Averas. For example, thou shalt not murder. Well, obviously, if you're infinitely valuable, unique, equal, I, no, I did not murder you. I shouldn't murder you. I wouldn't want to murder you. Thou shalt not steal. Well, if you're equal to me, and you're an infinitely valuable person, I understand that I can't take advantage of you and grab your property because I'm physically stronger, because I have a gun, or because I'm clever enough to swindle you, I can't take anything from you without giving you a fair exchange because you're infinitely valuable, equal person. In short, all the commandments of the Torah, as implied in this, are ways of responding and honoring, respecting the fact that you're dealing with another person, including yourself, by the way. Okay, I start with that basic principle. If we understand that, so my contention is what the religion is about is an attempt to create a partnership between God and humanity, between God and the Jews, if you will, humanity really, and between the generations to create a world 
in which this dignity will be respected and honored. That would be a world you have to overcome poverty so that everybody could be treated like their life is valuable, infinitely valuable. And they should be able to afford medical treatment. They should be able to afford, they shouldn't be hungry because they can afford clothes. They shouldn't be homeless, etc. You have to create a world in which they overcome discrimination of all sorts, sexism, racism, and you have to create a world in which they overcome war because wars are won by killing infinitely valuable, unique people. <coughs> and of course, what I'm describing is the Messianic age. Every one of those things, the prophets say, will be done. We'll live at times, the other side will beat the swords into plowshares and the neutron bombs into computers. I made that um, The time will come, we'd have to overcome sickness, like Alzheimer's or strokes, which rob people of their uniqueness. That is, in fact, what the Jewish religion is about. Now, what I'd like to, if you are following me so far, I'd like to apply this to the question of truth, and specifically truth in communication or speech. Explore this thesis that we're dealing not with a legal code, but with an attempt to create a standard by which people will tell the truth, talk to each other, as one Salamola came to another. If you'll turn back to the first sheet in this pile, the first sheet in this, the first sheet in this group, the sheet, I have done this sort of at the top, I drew up sort of quickly a list, a short list I've since found one or two others, of basic laws of speech and communication. Not to lie, not to deny falsely, distance from a lying word, truth and context, I'll come back to that in a moment, not to swear falsely, not to give false witness, not to bear tales, not to spread bad reports, not to accept, carry false reports, to correct or chastise, we'll come back to that in a moment. This is the list of rules. What's the missing, what would be the, the obvious rule that's missing in this list? You would expect it to see number one in the Hapa Hit Parade. If we're giving rules for speaking, Sorry? A little louder? Um, well, okay, okay. Uh, you can make that case that you go first, but I would argue there's a much more blatant, something is much more blatantly missing. If you had a guidebook to speech, what would you expect the first rule to be? What? Well, that's in there. Lashon Hara is not the first. Lashon Hara is, is in there. What's that? How about a thing of a positive commandment? I guess I'm a no naive. I was trying to, I assume you, you all get you all tell me that the first thing. What was the, what was the what's the first part of the commandment you expect in the rules about how to speak? You don't have anything nice to say. Don't say anything. Sorry. You don't have anything nice to say. Don't say anything. Those are all great suggestions, but how about, how about, yes? Okay. Okay, well, we'll, we'll control ourselves. Maybe the question and answer can come back. It seems to me, after all, ignoring what the Lord says, the seal 
understand that when you know God is there, it's in it, it's truth. This is God's seal. I would expect the first Lord of Torah says, tell the truth. Then we'll start, you know, the other things don't bring false reports. So it's missing altogether. So when it dawned upon me, it's missing. I couldn't find any law in the Torah that says, tell the truth. Began to think, what's, why is it missing? And I come back to my thesis tonight. I think because it, the Torah, sorry? In fact, I'm going to come back to it. The truth is, Lush and Hara, you are telling the truth. Right. Yeah. We'll come back to that in a moment. Yeah. Right. But the Torah doesn't say tell the truth. I'm not Lush and Hara, but I will. Okay, we'll come back to we do that. Or the Torah doesn't say that I'm going to tell the truth. Well, it be Lush and Hara. Tell the truth. It's more important. The Torah does not say, why not? My thesis is, because you can't tell someone to tell the truth, there is no such thing as an objective truth that you can tell, the commanded to tell because the truth is in context. And that's the critical point I want to make. What does it mean? Telling, particularly in speech and communication, maybe there are trivial truths, like E equals MC squared. That's a trivial truth, which doesn't matter what the context is of it. But if you're talking truth in communication, in speech between people, you can't simply say, tell the truth, why not? Because there's something else going on here that must be factored in, which is what? An image of God, a person of infinite value, equality, uniqueness, is speaking to a person of infinite value, equality, and uniqueness. And if you don't factor that in, or if you don't weigh that properly, what you think is the truth may in fact be a violation of the equality or the dignity of that person. If you don't factor that in, what you think is the truth may be a falsehood and vice versa. What you think is a falsehood may turn out to be a true. Once you factor in that truth is not just an objective correlative to facts, truth in speech or truth in communication grows out of the fact that two human beings with Selma Lakim are talking to each other. And this is a factor that is a criterion for truth. And that's why you can't make an abstract statement tell truth. You can always say tell truth in the context of another Selma Lakim. Let me, let me try to apply that thesis to the, um, something I mentioned. I'll come back to Midrash Shekhar Tichok, but I'll come back to Lashon Har in a minute. Let me insert one other example before we get to that. And that is the mitzvah of Hochecha. It's number nine on my original list, or in Hochecha, so if you have any secrets from the, from Doshim, one of the classic passages in the Torah. And you have in your, the third sheet, uh, in this little thing, the Talmud Bavli, Analysis of Ocheach Tochiach. The first time I saw the law Ocheach Tochiach, my heart sank. I said, oh no. You know what this law says? It's a mitzvah to criticize or to correct. Amitka has your friend, the person next to you. I said, oh no, God, you know, there's a hunting license for Dunnix and Nagel. When they discover this, my life will be, everybody's life will be miserable. Then you come and take a look at what the Gemara says, and you suddenly realize my point about what we're talking about is the question of truth between people. So, okay, here's what the Gemara says. Starts with the with the commandment. How do we know that if you see in your friend something ugly, something wrong, something twisted, something evil, something improper, 
It's a mitzvah you're required to correct or to chastise or to criticize that person. How do we know that's what the Pasuk means? It says, Not just, means, give it to them. Tell them the truth. They are acting badly. They are dressing <coughs> like a shlom. They are being obnoxious. You have an obligation to tell them. Tell them the truth. Okay? Hold on. It gets worse. Hochia, hochicho, velokiko, line two. What if he criticizes him and the friend does not listen? The friend goes on with the same bad behaviors, with the same bad habits. What do you do then? Keep smoking. What do you do? Then you are commanded to go back. Don't accept no for answer. Criticize him again. The second verb means you've got to keep criticizing, you've got to keep telling the truth that they're wrong, or they're bad, or they're doing the wrong thing. Okay, now suddenly, the Gemara says, well, let's first qualify that. Not so fast. Actually, there's a Gemara here, which I didn't quote because it's not in Arachim. The Gemara says in Vamitzina, like it's a mitzvah to criticize, to say, if they'll listen, Shem Shem Nishma, if they will listen to you, it's a mitzvah not to speak if they won't listen. What's that about? Well, here's what the Gemara now says. Tanya or Abitarfa. Abitarfa says, as I reflect on this idea of criticizing my, my friend, my neighbor, my next door, Tamay, I question, in yesh bedor I question whether anybody in this generation has the right or the ability to criticize another person. Why? You know why? If he tells him, take the splinter out between your eyes, that's a statement, a popular statement in the New Testament also, it's a, it's a statement of something wrong with you, take that splinter out of your eyes, take that whatever away, it's wrong. He will answer to him, you tell me to take my splinter away, you've got a, not a splinter, but a whole beam between your eyes, you take it away first. What I was trying to say, hold on. If you want to criticize someone, don't criticize if you're not an example of what you're saying they should be. In other words, if you are, in fact, smoking, don't tell this person don't smoke. If you are making, uh, you know, nudging yourself, don't say if you are known to be a nudge yourself, because why not? Because what he's trying to say, of course, is this is between images of God. This person is equal to you. This person is a valuable person, right? Right? You know what? Their very person and your very person also is speaking here. So your words may say, don't be a nudge, but you are, in fact, in your behavior nudge. Your words are going to be contradicted. This person is not going to believe it. Because this person is say, the unique person that you are is in fact making trouble all the time. Or you are smoking, or you are eating bad food, and you're giving me lectures about living properly, or you're not exercising, you're telling me I should be exercising. So again, the truth between us is not a credible truth, because either your actions or your behavior contradict what you are saying, and that, in the context of two human beings, because I'm listening to you and looking at you, not just at your words, has no credibility. Omar Rosh Hashanah, that's one problem. Let me tell you a second problem. 
What if I, in fact, am an example? I don't smoke, and I'm lecturing you about not smoking. That's not good message, Rabbi Lazarus. You know why? To me, I, I question in the Ishpador is that even if I'm an example of what I'm talking about, I don't know if another assertion knows how to criticize. What does that mean, knows how to criticize? You're speaking to a unique person. This person at this moment, do you understand exactly where they are? Right now, they're not in the mood to hear criticism. Yes, they need it. And they all the time, right now, they're feeling down. You're going to criticize them at this moment, you're going to kick them when they're down? I'm not going to hear you. In fact, what they're really going to feel is destroy them. That's what you're So he's saying, you're there. It's not enough that you are an example of what you're talking about so that your, your own behavior or your own self doesn't contradict your words. It's equally important that you're fully aware of the state of this person you're talking to and you can judge whether at this moment they're ready to hear or able to hear or want to hear your criticism. And if the answer is no, don't say it. And so, in fact, I frankly don't know if the average person in this generation can make that judgment. Is that tuned in to the other person? Is that aware of them? To make a judgment if this is the right moment to criticize. So my answer is, if you're not sure you can know when to criticize, don't speak. Because telling the truth is not good enough. It has to be a truth that respects the tzalmolakim of the other person. Which brings you to our Merkiva. Merkiva pushes this, of course, to the limit. He says, Tamani, I question, in the truth is, even if you are an example of what you're talking about and you know how to say it, I don't think anybody in the situation wants to be pleased. He's ready to accept criticism. So what's the implication of Akiva? So we'll never criticize because the whole generation... It's funny, I, I was trying to think when I read the first read this, what is that Rabbi Kiva's feeling about the generation? Like someone said before, no one tells the truth anymore in our generation. You know, it's like Maimonides has this great line that Torah is very much in favor of community, and people shouldn't separate from the community, and they should always be together. They should live in society. It's no point being a righteous person if you separate. And then he says, but if you live in a generation like ours, when it's totally corrupt and totally evil, then you can separate God. <laughs> okay, so. I don't know. I'm trying to think about what meant that his generation didn't want to criticize, didn't accept criticism, but like good old days when they did accept criticism. But either way, what is he trying to say? It would appear to say that if people are not ready to accept, then you shouldn't exercise the mitzvah. But of course, my point is, I've never heard of that. Let me let me flip that and see what I mean. Suppose I said to you, um, keep shabbos. But then, but if the people don't want to hear that. Don't say it. I have to tell the truth. People don't hear it, don't say it. And you have a mitzvah that says, say it, but only if they're willing to hear it. Well, I, th- I think that it, it alludes to the idea that you don't want to criticize to the point of embarrassment. That that's really the mitzvah we're talking about that evolves from this, is that if you embarrass, you then destroy a person um, and take in, taken away their humanity. So if you public, especially publicly, which this actually doesn't allude to, but that's right the the concept. It's right there in the morning. I should have said that before. <laughs> Did I skip that? No, I skipped number three. My mistake. I got carried away by this. <laughs> number three was just that. We just said, does this mitzvah to criticize me? I feel even if I embarrass them or humiliate them, or their face turns red or white. The answer is no. You're not allowed to make a sin here. But so it's a very important point. But I'm trying to make it a little sharper now on this and broader. That's correct, but even broader. He's really saying what I keep, I think. 
Yes, if the culture is resistant or against criticism, then you shouldn't criticize. But you know what? Doesn't mean you give it up the midst, but you know what? Again, I come back to the first Rabbi Tarko's viewpoint. Because the answer is there's a statement you can make without criticizing in a generation where no one wants to hear criticism. What the statement is? Who you are, what you are. You want to tell them, don't be an emotion. If you are personally a nice, kind, thoughtful, understanding, non-harassing person, your presence, your friendship with this person is the most powerful statement, A, this is the way to be, B, don't be an emotion. If you are, if this person is smoking and they want to hear it, if you live a clean life, if you don't smoke, if you don't, if you a good shape, the fact that you're in their life and you're showing an example of what it's like, your Zell Kim is making a statement that is the best criticism of the world. Namely, it's showing a model of how to be. But the point is that criticism, therefore, again, itself is spoken as a Zell Kim, as a Zell words, and it's spoken only under circumstances that don't push, degrade, annoy someone. And let's push on to the next example of that very point, uh, applying it in a, in a slightly different context. Okay, the next context is, if you look to the next page in the set of sheets here, it is the question of Midbar Shekhar of Tirchak. Um, uh, get you away from a false, distance yourself from a false word. Again, the first time I saw it, I was trying to figure out what does this mean? Why does it say tell the truth? Why does it say distance yourself from a false word? I think it's put in that language for the reason that I've been saying all evening. Because all speech and all true communication is between an image of God, and you must factor in that this person opposite you is an image of God and that you are one. Otherwise, your words may not, in fact, be the truth. They may be the truth when you speak them, but the way they'll be heard makes them into a lie. The way they will come across makes it a contradiction to the actual reality. Let's, let's go through some of the examples. It would be, be interesting to see. First example is on page 176. The next one. Uh, it says, when a Dayan is about to report his ruling, he should not appoint a Sanigor, a defense attorney, someone to speak and defend and justify his decision. Uh, and explain that uh, in a slightly different way. What he's trying to say is, when I'm writing uh, a judge's opinion, I should report the evidence for my ruling and for my evidence against it. I should not write a brief like a Sunday go like a defense attorney does, which gives all the reasons why my client is innocent, for all the reasons why my client should win. The Dayan should not appoint or write that kind of a brief. The Dayan is supposed to write a ruling. Again, there was 55% evidence for the prosecution and 45%, and he concluded that on balance this person wins, then you should write the brief that way. You should not write a one-sided brief that justifies or upholds your rulings. Because if you do, you're going to violate the law of Shekhar Tichok that you didn't distance yourself from a false thing. So I ask, what's, what's the false thing here? I, as a judge, in good faith, conclude that the prosecution wins or that the, the plaintiff wins. Every example I give in my brief is of the evidence that persuaded me. So why is it a lie 
to only put that evidence in, not put the counter evidence in. Why is it a, at least getting close to a false thing? To only put, after all, I, I, I want people to accept my ruling. So I give all the evidence for my ruling. I'll give you a firm one last analogy and get your response. What if I'm a rabbi presenting Jews in here on the Halakhazic system? I have an overwhelming temptation to tell you how wonderful it is and everything is great. You know, should I tell you the other half of the coin? You know, a book I loved and used for many years in my rabbi, and then I realized this isn't fair. Roman Lamb, Hedge of Roses. Beautiful presentation of the laws of Eden and so on. And I loved it and I used it. One day it occurred to me. You know, there's no problems with observing Taurus and Florida. There's no emotional or physical conflict. There's never a time when I feel a great urge to have sex, but it's also, I mean, it never occurred to me because it, it would be in there, wouldn't it? Of course, it dawned upon me that I was guilty of that. I was pointing a Sunday go, and I was giving them every single argument why this is a great law, but I didn't have, I was lying. I mean, I was, I was, I was, because I left out all the complications and all the problems and all the difficulties. What's wrong with that? What's that? Not valid. So I'm saying, but what's wrong with that? It's not the truth. What's that? Well, it's not the truth. It's only half of half somebody's perception. It's and it's not taking into account the equal the equality. So I come back to my point about this is an image of God. This is a person equal to me. A value, right? A why did I leave out the bad parts? Because I felt that I, the judge, I, the rabbi, I know the complications and I'm capable of making the right decision. But you, if you knew it, you wouldn't make the right decision. You might go the other way. So I have to give you only the evidence for it. I didn't treat you like an equal. I didn't treat you like a person of intelligence, of a person who is capable of free judgment, of free will, and of free commitment who's as capable as I am, or will be if I will share the evidence with him, of making fine distinctions instead of gross distinctions. In fact, if I don't give you that information, you will not grow up being able to make fine distinctions. And you will, in fact, not be able to make judgments or good judgments in cases that are very, very hard to call. So again, I didn't treat you like an image of God. I treated you like an infantile, like a child, or frankly, like a salesman treating a customer who I want to make the sale and I don't care, in fact, whether in the end it will really be the, what the person needs or wants or will be able to get maximum use out of it. I'm interested in selling my car. <coughs> so it's a violation of the Etzelah of him and these words, every word was true, but in the process I ended up coming very close to a lie because I didn't get a true picture of how it is to live this way or to understand this way. Let's give it a turn to the next page, next page, please. Number, Kuf Gimel. Kuf Gimel. In Nihilish, Nihilish, and Bogdai, two people, plaintiff and defendant, come to the judge. One is Labush Smartut, and one is wearing rags. I heard Labush, it's the least Basmeyam, and one is dressed in aristocratic robes, wealthy. What do we tell the person? Either you dress down like him, or you give him clothes that match yours. How come? What's wrong? I mean, let's be fair. I, I came wearing normal dress, he came over. Why is it that I'm not allowed to have a case in which the defendant clearly looks like a bum, and the 
plaintiff looks like a respectable, honest person. Why not? Number one is you're not seeing them as a tzalmok. You're not going to see them as an equal. You're going to see them as a He must be, if he's poor, he must be something wrong with him. He's inferior. This is a respectable, established person. So number one, I'm not going to see this person equal. I'm not going to treat him as an equal. The truth is, even when he speaks, I'm not going to listen with the same credibility as I would to somebody who used to be an advertiser 20 years ago, you're all too young for it. When he have Hutton speaks, everyone listens. This was a broker. You know, so, and the, the big noise, something E.F. Hutton speaks and the whole place falls quiet. Why do they fall quiet? Well, because E.F. Hutton's rich, so he must be saying something very important, all that me rich. So everybody falls quiet. When you think this person is a nothing, a nobody, you're not going to listen with anything like the same concentration of respect. So again, even though they may speak their own words and in all sincerity, you won't hear it. And of course, I wanted to say, the truth is, he probably won't even speak that way. When he looks at the other guy and sees how well dressed he is, he's going to say to himself, no one's going to listen to me, no one's going to believe me, that's his person. So he's not even going to plead his case anymore. So again, the Tselemo King dimension turns the truths that are spoken into lies or into misleading, at best, understanding between human beings. Now I come to the last example on this page, as the woman in the back raised the point before. What's different about Russian Haram from Rafilas, from Bearing Tales? What makes Russian Haram special? Because you did tell the truth. Russian Haram truth. So why can't I tell Russian Haram? It is the truth. Why can't I tweet? I'm only telling the truth. Because it's demeaning. What's the problem? You're demeaning someone. You're, you're showing that that they're you know at fault. You embarrass them. So you're really you're denigrating. Your words them. are really degrading them. Yeah. Now again, here we clearly. Well, it's lush and hurrah if there's no need to know. If you are about to do a business deal with this person, and I know he's a swindler, it's not lush and hurrah to tell you this is a swindler, because in fact there's a need to know. But a stranger, a neighbor who has no connection to this person in business, to tell them they have no need to know, no value, except that you drag down the cell kid. Instead of seeing this as a dignified, respectable person, I talk to this person is a now he is inferior. But in this context, you didn't need to know that. All I'm doing is violating the Samuel King of person. So that's why Lush, that, that's the fundamental reason why I watch it out. And I give one uh, one last example is my favorite the other way. I've stressed how the truth of image of God can turn a truth into a lie. Let me give you an example of how the truth doesn't turn a lie into a truth. It's, it's a check mark right below the page on Kuf test. If our checker took Kate Samarak was there, there's a very famous passage in the Talmud. I'm sure you all know it by heart. You probably sung it at weddings. Kate Samarak, what song do we sing when we dance in front of the Kalah? You praise in accordance with her. If she's beautiful, you'll see she's beautiful. You know, if she's smart, you'll see that she's smart. If she, uh, she's rich, you'll see that she's rich. Whatever it is that you think will be a praise for Praise the woman? No. But every wedding and every bride we sing, Kala Norbachasuda. She is beautiful and good character or pious. What's the problem? 
Okay, you got the problem, so let me go on. You would think that the Shabbat should win this argument. According to your view, every single bride is beautiful and good character of highest? I said, what if she was, in fact, um, handicapped? What if she was blind? You're ignoring that? Physically not beautiful? Right? You still say, Kalan al Hasuda? I mean, you never saw a bride done with a sin, you would say she's beautiful. Any bride? The Torah, Amram the Torah said we should beware of saying false words. How can you sing that every bride is good character? Amram what's the Hashem answer? Did you break him? The question again, this is the question of where you're talking to somebody. You're not talking abstractly, you're talking between one image of God and another. For example, if you're talking to a friend, a totally different issue. If someone um, made a bad judgment or a bad purchase, right? And I say, you idiot, you just bought this piece of tr- trash, it's not, it's ugly looking, why did you bother doing that? Or would you honestly say, you shall come with us, you'd say, gee, I, I, I know it's a very special taste that you have, but it, it fits your taste. <laughs> In other words, you're thinking you're wanting lies. The truth is, it's not true. When you speak to people, you speak subjectively to their terms. Alright? Therefore, in order to speak to somebody, you have to first understand or be empathetic or sympathetic. Now, what's it mean empathetic sympathetic in the case of the Kala and the, the Queen? The answer, obviously, is that he loves her. What do you mean she's not beautiful? The answer is that she's unique. That's why he's beautiful. She's the only woman in the world with one eye and a beautiful fire. That's why he loves her. I mean, the other girl's different. The whole point is, whatever it is, he's the only guy with, you know, whatever, with a claw. But that's okay. But I, I love him. Okay. I guess we'll, we'll strike that. But you know what I'm saying. You know, the, the point is, if you see her as a symbol of him, every for him, as a said kid, that every bride of Ruben feels that way about their father. That they are, in fact, not of a chasuna. That's why they're married. And that's why, in fact, we, at every wedding, so what would be a lie, right? Miss America, she looks like me is coming. I mean, I understand that. But the reality is that in the context of Tzalmah Lekim, of her uniqueness, of her value, of her equality and dignity to him, that's exactly how he sees her or she sees her. So my point is, if you understand the speech, and I, I want to conclude with that point, or let's throw it into your question. If one understands that, in fact, speech and all forms of communication, not just speech, I would apply to sexuality and <coughs> communication, that there are two dimensions to the definition of truth. One is the facts. Does it correlate with the facts? If today is Wednesday, I shouldn't get up and tell you today is Tuesday, or today is Thursday, knowing we didn't sleep. That's the objective fact. But no less, and for all important truths, speech between people, communication between people, the most powerful statement of being an image of God is communication to somebody else. The way I speak, the way I talk, the way I relate, the way I physically shake hands, the way I hug them, the way I kiss them, that's my statement about them and to them. Furthermore, it's the most powerful way in which I express the fact that I am at some of I feel a sense of worry. 
that I feel a sense of uniqueness which I express. One of the reasons I'm responding to you so strongly is because this is the unique part of you that appeals to me. That's why we're friends. That's why we're loved. We love each other because of this quality. So that all speech and communication simultaneously either expresses my and develops my image of God, or it recognizes, confirms the image of God of the other. If in fact, instead of confirming, it denies, degrades, distorts, or destroys, it's a lie. Or it turns into a false word because it ignored the context and acted as if words are simply objective statements instead of expressions of relationship and connection to the other person. So what we're here Yeah, but we'll take a few questions now before Marv is reminded of Marv is immediately thereafter uh, after the questions. Um, we got Terry and Marv right over here and Peter Marv right in here. Um, and just remind you, please voice your question loudly and uh, I'll repeat it. I'll repeat it. Well, yeah, it wasn't exactly a question, but I was just thinking that a law, I think, in the judicial process is that one of the, you're not supposed to have one of the um, people present their case without the other one present. And I think that that could be related to Lush and R also, because not just a degradation of the individual, but it's usually uh, an item or an incident that happened that you're taking out of context without mm. the other person there to actually defend them and to place them in some type of context. Like this is what was happening. Good, excellent point. Both points. It was one of the hours I skipped and have time for it. If you're not allowed to present your case to the judge in the other one's absence or before them because it gives you an advantage, you'll be treated not as equal, and if it's prohibited, and of course, uh, and your, your second point, that Elisha Nahara, in effect, is doing that. It's making a kind of judicial judgment about this person with your version, which they don't have a chance to either answer or... It's like the one can make the analogy to the constitutional right to cross-examine the witnesses for that very reason, because that way I'll get an equal shake and not just uh, one-sided... Yeah, please. Assuming that level of team is a foundational principle, it seems as if that's a universal principle, and I'm curious then what distinctions, if any, are there or exist between Jew or Gentile or between Cohen, Levi, Israel, Okay, the question is, is image of God a universal category, everybody is an image of God? Or is there in fact differences between Jews and non-Jews, or between within Jews the Kohen, Levi, Israel? It's an excellent question. It would be worth a whole evening to really explore it and fully let me say why. First of all, if you looked at, I read you the quote that is found in earlier Mishnah texts, the one about if you save one life of the Nehadam, it's like saving the whole world. In the later texts of the Talmud, including the most widely spread printed version, the Raman version, which is the classic version that most of the, most of the Talmudic uh, issues, mm-hmm. editions available to you and I, have the Ram. Ram says, if you save Nefesh HaChasmi Yisrael, a Jewish land, if you destroy a Jewish land, if you check the manuscripts going back, it turns out that the original statement is general, but at some point they wrote in Jewish land. What's going on? The answer is obvious. And of course there are in fact laws in Jewish tradition which do not treat non-Jews as equal to Jews, or Jews between them. And therefore, this principle is not honored in those laws. Now, my contention is, 
when this was written into this Mishnah, that if you save your life, it's a Jewish life. Of course, some Mishnah goes up on saving your life on Shabbat. You save only the Jew by the official Halakha Mishnah. I come back to my earlier comment. That's what I'm trying to say. Halakha, in my judgment, is not or should not be a legal system which precedents simply have authority you can't touch them, but rather it's an attempt to create a partnership and a world in which everybody is treated similarly. Now, what's my proof everybody? Because, of course, the story in the Torah is everybody. Adam is not the first Jew. Adam is the first human being. Noah, who enters into grief with God, is not the first Jew, it's the first human being. And Jews have a separate view. So my argument is, in principle, that A, according to Judaism, at least in its ideal statement, everybody is Mishnah, everybody is equal, everybody is a different It is true that either in the course of history there were such bad relations between Jews and non-Jews, and again, when the law made Zuchut, Jews were very badly treated, that some Jews became so angry and so hostile that they said, this is not a man, this is a guy. This is an inferior creature. How can Kriya Madhava said famous Kamara? You are human, you are called a human being, but they are not. Avodah Zarah, Agarajas are not human beings, they are presumably Kamarim or whatever they are, they're less than human, they're less than human. Now, secondly, in a less negative interpretation, the tradition is a partnership of really trying to move the world toward perfection. It starts in the real world. So it does not start with equality immediately because it was a world of inequality. I give the best example, of course it's not non-Jews, the best example is women. The Torah right after the Sinai starts, the first two laws of Mishpatim start with slavery. Slavery is a violation of something. The Torah does not abolish it overnight. The whole point of the Torah is the Jews were taken out of slavery. But the whole message of the Torah, the whole world were taken out of slavery something. But the Torah starts by not abolishing slavery overnight, but in a covenantal way, one step at a time. The first step is the Jewish slaves, six-year limit. The Jewish slaves, not on Shabbat. Shabbat everybody is free. Shabbat, of course, is the day of perfection, which keeps us going until we get to the Messianic age. But on the rest of the week, we compromise with reality. Women, the first law there is from now on, you cannot sell your daughter to anybody unless he's going to marry him. And when he marries her, she has the rights of a free life. That's not quite equality. And the truth is, we are now 3,150 years later, roughly. And as my wife has pointed out many times, we're still not equal, at least not in the Orthodox Church. So the answer, obvious answer is, it's an unfinished partnership. But I think it does not change the principle to me. It illuminates the principle where we're trying to go. And how we deal with these questions seems to me the test of that question of where you're trying to go. Yeah. I guess then to frame it in the positive, we have Shabbat Nisbah B'nai Noah, which seems to already built into the system that there are those who keep 613 and there are those that keep 7, even assuming it's the ideal state. I agree. But by the way, the 7 is not just 7. If you look at them carefully, it's a book by Arnold, it's not not the Rosh Hashiva, but another one. It says 55 mitzvahs are included to be 7, but it's not only 55 or 613. The main point is, I think, is that the Torah is telling us all human beings are in this covenant with God. We have a particular covenant. And by the way, I personally believe that Christianity is another example of a particular covenant, or Islam, or Buddhism. In other words, that God has covenanted with more than one people. But our covenant, 
That's our goal, is to set a pace, to set an example, to, to show the world how to work at moving the world closer. That, in essence, is my argument, of course, it's happening right now. And again, I, but again, I have to stay in the full presence of what I'm saying. To the extent that people are not treated as equal my judgments because their external routine is not being properly recognized and respected. Right? We shouldn't fool ourselves. In the tradition, 50, 100 years ago, women were allowed one flourish about that. How one? Because in the end, it's a judgment their mind, Tatum Kalos, that their mind is too right or they're not intellectually capable. It's the inferior mind. So again, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not simply trying to be condescending to the past. What I'm saying is, you have to see context. In the context of human civilization, Judaism proclaimed revolutionary message that all people are suffering. But how you get there from where you start takes time, it's slow, it's one of the good glories. We do the alternative with slavery. In America, slavery was abolished overnight in the Emancipation Proclamation. The only catch is, took a civil war and a death of millions to make that stick. And you know what? The whites were so angry because they weren't prepared for it that they kept them in Jim Crow slavery for another 125 years. That's still a problem. So my point is, the continental way sometimes is slow. But I think it's important to keep in mind its vision. Its vision is several came everybody, starting with Jews, but extending to everybody. And of course, it's an unfinished partnership. Take one of the comments. So I'm interested by the, the passage about uh, progressing uh, parties in a court case the same way, and about how that, what that teaches us about dealing with difference in a, a complicated society where it's not just inequality, but that there are identities bound up with inequality. So like today in court, you're supposed to come in a suit, but somebody that normally dresses in a long athletic jersey and a do-rag and a flat brim hat feels then that his identity is kind of being in the face of making, being made to dress up like a white banker. Um, <laughs> it's a very subtle and powerful point. What you're really saying, which is true, that American society is far from pluralist, although it has done, gradually gone much further than most any other society. And that's a very good and subtle example. The truth is, it's pluralist, but it has all kinds of expectations, officially and legally pluralist, that it recognizes the poor entitled to representation. But in fact, it imposes, all, again, what, what it's worth. So my answer is America also needs to be finished and keep developing. I, I, when I grew up in the 50s and the 60s, and the 60s were the breakthrough, of course, being Jews were expected to be inspected in America. It was, at the center was going down, but the expectation was, you know, you would Americanize it in the term, please, right? I always tell people a story. I'm a living example of that. You know, just as Yitz, it's very kind of John to do that, but the truth is, on my birthday today, it doesn't say Yitzhak, which is my name with that. It says Irvin. Now, how did I get to be Irvin? Because my parents, uh, my brother, my name was a brisker Muslim, and they were totally religiously orthodox and so on. But at the moment, the truth of the brisker said, we're going to name Yitzhak, Yitzhak. It will stand from this outside the American mainstream. It will stand as hopelessly greener and a Jew. So they looked around for a while in the Saxon Protestant name, and they gave it to me. Okay. Well, okay. So one of the breakthroughs in the 60s and 70s was that people started, you know, using biblical names or, or Jewish names. When I first came out as Yitzhak, my family called me Yitzhak X. Anyway, 
But, I, you know, so the answer is we have a long way to go, although I think we also have come a long way. And yes, these are some of the subtleties that we have to work on if you want true equality anymore. Of course, I should fall back to my own common also. In a continent, you don't always do what's perfect, you do the best possible. So again, I'm not justifying we have to work on making it better, but the best possible includes quite a bit of gaps, like the one you just mentioned. Just to uh, piggyback on Anita's comment uh, or his question, so what I mean, two of the three, what is equality, what is the value, the other is individuality. My question is, how would you balance individuality in that same It's a wonderful question. Again, worth <laughs> a lifetime of one, because infinite value as a dignity supports equality. And obviously, the two go together. But equality, uniqueness are in tension and sometimes in conflict with each other. Because the truth is, you're uniquely gifted at making money, so you become super rich. And that makes a lot of inequality between me, who is not very confident in the city. Or uniqueness and equality, again, it leads to all kinds of differences which may turn into hierarchy or privilege or advantage. So my answer is, on the other hand, the alternative solution, kind of the totalitarian socialism. Everybody will be equal. We're going to kill off or suppress anybody who makes money or will take away the private property so that everybody has proven to be a cure worse than a disease. So the answer is a lot of our life in economics and politics and a lot of our life politically is sometimes balancing that tension of uniqueness and inequality. The Torah asks to do justice to both, but in many cases it's a trade-off, and in other cases you can do both, but you give up something in each case in order to do that. And if you don't check it, like all good things, if you don't have, that's why I come back to the term breed of covenant. One of the most powerful insights of covenant is that everything good, as well as everything bad, everything good must be limited. You must know its limits. Because good things without limits become bad things. Good food that you eat without limit becomes unhealthy. Um, you name it, exercise, you can overdo it. Good values, desire to make people equal, can turn into a form of dictatorship and a form of abuse and a form of, you know. So the point is, all these standards have to be approached with the sense of their importance and their limits. The limits include that it's not perfect, but compared to the human context, it's a lot better or it's the best we have right now. And sometimes the limits is the other way. I acknowledge that it's not perfect because of the limits, but I have to go back and see if I can push the limits, so I can push the envelope. And that, of course, is what makes, I think, again, the halakhic life. It's not a legal system in my judgment. It's a dynamic human ecology, I like to call it. We're trying to raise a human being in the image of God. We're trying to create an environment where that would flourish. We'd have enough water, we'd have enough food, we'd have enough nutrients, have enough sunshine. What we put on the human terms is economic, political freedom, and dignity, having, not being hungry, not being starving. It also includes cultural and religious freedom. Again, meaning exposure, opportunity, and access to these things. And again, my argument is that if it respects uniqueness, it will offer a lot of variety and pluralism. If it denies uniqueness and tries to offer one way, one stage, one review, 
I think it's a denial or a degradation of my son's location. It should be corrected.